Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thank you to Sally from the last uh, great show. Sally's show is Out of the Pan. You're on Freedom of Species now. Now, Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are actually dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals, including animal advocacy, activism, conservation protection, and, of course, appreciation. We are broadcasting live from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and all podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and um, iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend and I'm going to start uh, the show today with a tune by Jamiroquai called um, This Corner of the Earth. Uh, basically because the corner of the earth in discussion today is Kosciuszko National Park, which covers a large part of southern New South Wales. In fact, a good seventh, oh, nearly 7,000 square kilometre um, area. Uh, we love to think, I think, as a an Australian collective that we have a great respect and defend our wilderness and our land and our nature, yet it's becoming alarmingly evident we have opposing ideas of what that looks like, should it include Brumbies. Now, I'm going to play the song while I get our guests on uh, the phone, so we'll be back after this. Radiothon 2017 3CR Radio for Change 9419 3CR.org.au The best things in life are free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money 3CR Radio for Change That's what I want 9419 3CR.org.au That's what I want. Radiothon 2017, 3CR, Radio for Change. Your love gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money. That's what I want. That's what I want. 
You are on Freedom of Species and we're just still trying to get through to Peter Cochran. Peter, if you're out there, we're just trying to call your landline to get through to you. We have May Lee on the phone, but in the meantime, that was a little call out for the Radiothon every year. We need to uh, raise a lot of money to keep this fabulous station on air, um, an independent radio station that, you know, a lot of um, in-depth analysis of different issues gets broadcast on this station from climate change to refugee issues uh, to uh, drug, pharmaceutical issues, transgender issues, etc. The list goes on. Um, there's great media training that happens at 3CR, so that really helps a lot of people become engaged in great social activist enterprises. Uh, so if you can, please donate. Uh, Freedom of Species is at, I think, nearly 60% of our target. So we've still got a good $600 to go. So um, please, if you've got $5 or 500 uh, to spare, it would be greatly appreciated. And obviously, we will thank people on air. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. You are on Freedom of Species, and we're sorry about the wait, but um, we're just trying to get one of our guests... um, on the line, Peter Cochran as well. But um, look, it's great. We're joined by May Lee Sun from Wild Horse Journal. Are you there, May Lee? I am. Hi, Emma. Excellent. Thanks so much. A very warm welcome to you for um, Thank you. taking the time on a to. Cold day. Yeah, yeah. Taking the time to join us. Oh, gosh, there's this big management plan that was initially going to cull 6,000 feral horses. Of They call them feral horses, don't they, or wild horses, but they're all brumbies, back to just 600 animals in Kosciuszko National Park in New South Wales. Now, that management plan is at a kind of standstill, at an impasse. But meanwhile, I think it's really important to recognise that concurrently, Horses are taken out of out of the park every year, anyhow, as part of a population management control, and they call it a passive trapping um, melee, don't they? And it's kind of interesting. So I was thinking, I've seen footage of this, and um, you know, later on, hopefully, we'll get Peter to comment on it. But it, even the language, the term passive, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? It's not really a passive trapping when you're taking um, these beautiful, majestic wild beasts and, and trapping them. It's not like, you know, I, I can imagine an, a, a stressed out executive at the end of a working day entering the Qantas club lounge, is it? No, it's, it's not at all. And, you know, I think the challenge with language, um, you know, people call killing collateral damage in war. So, you know... <laughs> It's, it's, it's all sort of couched in these, these terms that make it sound like what we're doing is some sort of service um, to the animal, um, but it's essentially capture and removal. And in the process now, this, this point is widely debated by, you know, the various interest groups, including amongst um, the Brumby advocates, because, you know, <laughs> This is the time of year. I mean, everyone has felt this this cold snap coming through, 
And this is the time of year, of course, when um, the horses would be have limited food supplies and access to the food. So if they set the traps with hay and molasses and the horses come in, it can be quite traumatic to have that gate closed behind them and with horses being flight animals when they sense danger. Um, they could be crashing about and you could have quite a number of horses, just like you would when they're transported, in, um, in an area where you've got pregnant mares, foals, stallions, um, and so forth from different mobs. Um, and they can get quite injured and become um, incredibly stressed because they're not nicely loading them onto horse floats. Mm. So, so they're quite confined. Suddenly they're very confined. Yeah, and that's I, right. even though I, I see that they, they have salt licks, so they're kind of tempted into that confined area. Um, mm-hmm. They're also removing, uh, you know, removing family groups. Is that right? As far as you know, like that—that that well, must I be quite that traumatizing. The plan would be um, for them to remove family groups because it creates a lot of um, disjointed relationships, and you've got the um, the survival of the remaining herd. And you know, I think that there's enough research out there now on the impact of animals who are left behind from family groups, and we see it clearly um, in other species. Um, And there's a grieving process as well as um, a lot of uh, attrition because you've got, you know, maybe foals that have not made it into those traps, and you've got pregnant mares without a stallion. Um, You've got mares with young, young foals, and whether or not you know, another band is going to um, separate that mare from that foal and then leave the foal to um, die because it would need the um, the attention of the mother. So, yeah, it's really very a disjointed process. Now, you have advocates who say that, well, this is the best way to do it as opposed to maybe the old school way, um, which is, you know, selecting out certain herds. So it just I guess it depends on your perspective on, you know, what's what's the most um, humane way. I mean, certainly it's not aerial shooting. Yeah. Um, basically, so once the, the Brumbies are actually uh, confined in that area, um, and, and this is happening as we speak, as I understand, where do they end up, Maylee? Uh, what, where, where do they end up? What's the transport? So the transport, you've got a couple of Brumby rehoming groups that also have this agreement with parks. Um, So they're registered with parks to be able to take some of the horses, but by all means, they cannot take hundreds of horses at a time. It's just not possible. They don't have the funds or the land as well um, as being able to, to feed these animals. And then there, you know, aren't enough homes for existing horses that are up for adoption and sale across, you know, the racing industry and just people who maybe have are trying to um, rid themselves of a horse that they no longer want. So they end up going to um, the abattoir or the knackery. And the reason I use both terms is that um, there's a distinction between, you know, the animals that are used for human consumption, which is the abattoir, and the animals that are um, used for pet meat and okay. pet food, which is the knackery. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about, you know, Brumbies that would potentially end up as part of this 1.6 billion.
billion dollar industry in Australia alone. Um, Which is the pet industry, yeah. So you're saying a majority of the removed brumbies, um, and as I understand it in the Victorian um, part of the National Park where they remove brumbies over a 10-week period, I I heard that like 700 brumbies could be taken at this time. Now the majority uh, would be sent to the abattoir, that's what you just said, or the knackery. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we'll just start. Unless, unless somebody steps up. I mean, you do have a few trainers that I'm aware of who have stepped up and said, well, they'll take a lot of them. But then, you know, the challenge is, do you find the right homes and do they eventually end up at the at the knackery or the abattoir anyway? I mean, it's anybody's guess because the numbers are a bit dodgy. Right. So what we're dealing with here is um, th- there's no data, is that right, by the sounds of things, on how, how many are removed and, and sold on to become pet, me- pet meat, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the challenge is that you've got an, um, an industry association called the Pet Food Industry Association of Australia, and their policy for members, now this is just for people who are members of this particular industry, um, they have a self-regulated agreement that if you are to become a member, um, that you're not to have horses, dolphins, or whales in their, you know, or whale meat in their pet food. It seems absurd, but of course, these are the animals that people have um, that, uh, you know, uh, benevolent association with. And so it's horrifying to find out that there would be a horse or a dolphin or a whale um, in your animal's food. Now, again, it's a self-regulated agreement that their members agree not to have this. And then there's further distinction between, you know, what is considered pet food, and that's like the processed, um, you know, product that you see on the supermarket shelves versus pet meat. And um, suppliers of pet meat come under a whole different set of standards, and that's the sort of things where you see these mince rolls in a produce store, you know, um, that's sold in the refrigerator. And by choice, these people tend not to be members of the PFIA because it gets dicey in terms of what kinds of animals are used in this pet meat because each state body looks after different types of, of food. And in Vic, it's prime safe. In Queensland, for instance, it would be Safe Food Queensland. And, um, you know, federal legislation sets the standard, but the actual regulations happen at the state level. And what that means, Emma, is that you don't often get the detail by species. So even though we say that records need to be kept by the sale yards, by contractors culling, and the knackeries have to keep um, records, um, what I have found is that in my own research and trying to get the information, that I've spent quite a bit of time going down rabbit holes because there isn't one source where the data is centralized. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. And, um, you know, racehorses um, are more able to be traced in terms of how many are killed per year. Um, you've got a group called the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses that have calculated about um, 13,000 thoroughbreds and standard breds, which are you know part of the harness racing and track racing, are bred each year. And they estimate that about the same number retire each, each year, but then where do they go? 
So oftentimes the media will say, oh, well, there's, um, you know, a number around 40,000 total horses that are killed each year in Australia. But, again, where do those numbers come from? Because it's really difficult to find which, um, you know, either industry body or government body or scientific body um, is keeping that information. And um, I think there's quite a few of us who are questioning whether that is purposely ambiguous. Um, it would be really difficult beyond the domestic horses to actually get Brumby numbers mm-hmm. because, you know, they just had that call earlier this year in Kakadu, which is a national park, and, um, you know, they, they mentioned in that article that there were 3,600 Brumbies that were, that were taken um, um, out of that park, and um, the rest of the six thousand were wild camels, donkeys. Um, so they were all uh, they were all shot, were they? And uh, by yeah, they aerial were shot shooting. By helicopter. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that was just a couple of months ago. So um, the implication is that those three thousand six hundred brumbies taken from Kakadu ended up as, I guess, pet meat. But there's no well, way of sure. tracking it. I'm not sure because you know some of it. Again, we. I've tried to get the information, and it was very, very difficult. I didn't have um, phone calls returned. Um, I've even called knackeries, and we know that there's a horse knackery in South Australia. Um, or, and also for human consumption, they'll process there as well. However, it was very difficult to get um, any answers to my phone calls. I think mm-hmm. that they, you know, the, the knackeries that I have called were really quite defensive. Mm-hmm. And, and, again, I identified myself um, and, um, and and yet, you know, they were really hesitant and, and really quite on the defensive. Mm. But the basic thing is that we it's very loose, the data on, you know, the Brumbies that have been removed and, and basically how many end up at the, at the knackery. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to track because yeah. the, you've got the actual numbers being called in, say, like a national park, they would probably have better data because... They have to, and you've got a lot of um, the different Brumby groups and interest groups, um, uh, you know, holding a keen eye to what's happening. Mm. But when you're talking about Brumbies being called on those massive tracts of land that are so vast, you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of hectares, you know, the only numbers we're getting is, you know, say with Kakadu, is the one taken off national parks. Mm. So the unknown numbers are on private stations. Um, and I would imagine because there's, um, you know, something to be gained by selling the carcasses, um, that that could end up in, likely to end up in pet food mm. because they would have to dispose of the body somehow yeah. unless they're, you know, otherwise hiding them. But again, I can't speak to that. Mm. It now, might- the Australian... Go ahead. Uh, it must be uh, from in, in your own personal experience as well. We're dealing with hundreds and uh, you know of brumbies here, whereas you've got the experience of relating to um, an individual brumby which you rescued called Trooper. Can you just um, take us through that story where he he was very very close to being um, a pet meat himself? Oh yeah, yeah, he was. Um, so I have two brumbies now. I've recently adopted a second one. But um, Trooper I've had for since um, 2011, and he was captured out of Kosciuszko, and um, 
ordinarily at that time they would have taken him straight to the knackery. However, um, they ended up at, um, I think there was like a, 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 a stand-in contractor who, en- who ended up taking them to the sales, and he was one that didn't sell. Most of them did not sell. There's only a few, less than a handful, I believe, that sold at the sales. And um, so they were transported from there to um, the knackery. And um, so, yes, he was minutes from being killed when um, something went awry, and I believe the water was contaminated, um, not with anything that was toxic. However, it was enough to delay the um, slaughter till the next morning, and a Brumby group um, at the time stepped in and was able to purchase a few from, from the owner. And um, I saw Trooper's photo um, online um, through this rescue group when I was doing my search for horses. <laughs> and, um, yeah, went up from Victoria to the Hunter Valley to, to adopt them. Wow, fate intervened. You, yes, uh, yeah, you are listening to 3CR Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. Uh, we are speaking with Mei Lee Sun from uh, Wild Horse Journal about Brumbies. Uh, we're going to take a short break and uh, listen to a song called Wild Animals by the Cat Empire. And in that time, I'm going to try and get Peter Cochran on the line as well. You are on Freedom of Species Animal... Sorry, Freedom of Species. Got a bit of a frog in my throat today. Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. And uh, we're back, I hope, with Peter Cochran from the Snowy Mountain um, Bush Users Group. Peter, are you there? Yes, I am, Emma. Uh, my apologies for being late. That's okay. Not a problem. It's Sunday. We are very appreciative that you um, you know, agree to be on, on the show at all. So thanks a million. Peter, you've had extensive experience uh, in that region, actually intergenerational, with your trekking business there up in the Snowy Mountains. And we were talking before with May Lee about how the actual trapping process how it feels and is for a Brumby is actually quite a traumatic experience as well. And you've got on-ground witnessing of that. Can you just briefly describe it for us? Emma, um, the trapping started back in 2008 as a consequence of the Wild Horse Management Plan of the Kosciuszko National Park. And that instrument is an operational plan by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service under the National Parks Act. So they have authority uh, to reduce what they refer to as feral animals. In this case, it's, uh, they refer to the Brumbies as feral animals. We don't. We refer to them as Brumbies in a, uh, in a more emotional way because there's a great attachment to them, and we can talk about that later. But the the fact is that these uh, the horse number reduction plan um, so is is really has evolved from what used to be trapping. Uh, by, of the horses some years ago before it was illegal to do it by landholders and others 
and it, it uh, requires yards to be built. And in this case, they use molasses and grain and other attractive food items for the horses to draw them into the yards, which are a very confined space. And when the horses are in there, a gate is slammed behind them and there they remain until they're transported by a trailer to yards about an hour away from generally, in general terms, about an hour away from the trap yards, um, to further yards. Then there's a selection process takes place and rehoming uh, is the preferred option for us and for the National Parks and Wildlife Service. So there are a number there in the vicinity of 30% or more, in fact up to 60% of the horses are uh, then rehomed. The balance of them will go to an acre, which requires them to be transported in some cases long distances to Petersburg in South Australia or uh, other other nacreys. Mm-hmm. So the process for those number of horses uh, is dire and... Um, and, and leave some injured, though the operators do what they can to minimise the impact on the horses and certainly in the most humane ways they can. But it is the process, mm. uh, the process itself, which, uh, of course, causes distress to the horses. So those of us who are animal lovers um, are not keen on that. We'd like to see them all rehomed uh, and taken to places where... Uh, people who have an affection for the horses and a love for animals generally can train the horses to be used for domestic purpose. That's that's the, the background of that side of it. You are listening to 3CR Freedom of Species and we'll be back just after this. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am Tune in and listen up. Uh, our apologies. We seem to have lost May Lee Sun's connection there. So technically, I don't know what's going on. I apologise for that. But thank you, May Lee, uh, so much for your input. I'll just concentrate, Peter, now on the Wild Horse Draft Management Plan uh, which seems to be at a bit of a standstill or an impasse. Peter, in your view, do stakeholders, pro Brumby and Green Groups have opposing end goals that are actually impossible to negotiate? Is that the reason for the standstill? Well, the fact is, ever that uh, it's not actually at a standstill. The draft wild horse management plan, we understand, has been dropped by the New South Wales State Government on the basis that it was uh, entirely inappropriate and based on falsehoods so far as numbers were concerned and also impact and and other allegations were made about the Brumbies which could not be substantiated uh, either in scientific or political terms. So we understand that the Cabinet has decided to drop the plan altogether and uh, they are still operating basically on the 2008 plan uh, which has its downsides as well because... Uh, I understand that there is no upper limit to the number of horses they can take out of the park. Uh, Our our wish is, and I'll speak on behalf of the Bush Users Group, is that um, they not take any more horses at all until such time as they substantiate the numbers, um, which have varied uh, according to the Australian National University in Canberra 
at 14,000, which is an outrageously um, exploded number, and it's simply not true, down to the National Parks and Wildlife Service minimum number of 3,700. So that's, sorry, now, that's the amount to be, that, that's the actual population number? That's the population number. That's, that's the number they're estimating they're in the park. So okay. the ANU uh, have a political agenda uh, and it's well known that they, in fact, want to totally eradicate all of the wild horses because you ask National Park, they would have them shot uh, and most of the environment groups would have them shot from the air. That is their preferred option. Uh, and that experience in Guy Fawkes National Park in 2001 was a total disaster. And uh, there were six, uh, 617 horses shot there. Some of them left to rot, others left wounded and wandering around for weeks. Uh, and it was the consequence of that was that after an agonising delay, the, national, the uh, RSPCA in New South Wales decided to take the National Parks and Wildlife Service to court. And predictably, um, there was uh, no, no um, finding against the National Parks and Wildlife Service uh, because of the empathy between the two organisations. And uh, we were distressed to learn that despite all of the the cruelty that occurred during that operation in 2001, the lessons weren't learnt. And uh, despite the fact that the government of the day said that it would not happen again, uh, when the Wild Horse Management Plan, the draft Wild Horse Management Plan, was published two years ago in New South Wales, lo and behold, uh, the option of aerial culling arose again. And that resulted in outrage amongst uh, animal lovers uh, like yourselves, and people across New South Wales, in fact, internationally, we had people from all over the world um, uh, raising their objections with the New South Wales government. So this has been an ongoing issue. The aerial culling now, we're told, is ruled out. Um, it hasn't been ruled out as an option by the National Parks and Wildlife Service, but the government of the day in New South Wales has said that they will not tolerate it. Uh, and we only have to take them at their word at that. Yeah. So and, and that's, that's where that stands. And ground shooting as well, has that been ruled out thus far? Or Well, ground shooting uh, in circumstances where an animal is injured or an animal is a threat to human life has always been an option and, mm. and it's a sensible option. We don't yeah. have a problem with that. Okay. And if, a, if an animal has to, has to be euthanised, uh, it's, if, it's, if it's injured, well, uh, sadly, that's what has to happen. Uh, similarly, if uh, if there is an old stallion or an aggressive horse, and they're very rare, I have to say, uh, if if that ha- occurs, then uh, we would certainly tolerate uh, the euthanising of a horse using a firearm uh, on the basis that it was a threat to human life. Now, other circumstances might be, for example, if a horse was in, in a very, very remote area uh, and was... Uh, suffering distress to itself, either through starvation or through circumstances where it was likely to be injured or a threat to it or something of that nature, then mm-hmm. then those circumstances where there is no real choice, we, we don't have yeah, a problem with that. Sure. But, but area, ground shooting, um, in other words, using snipers, is just not on. Um, those, um, those methods have been tried in other places uh, and have failed, except in flat country, uh, where, you know, you might be in the Northern Territory or Cape York or somewhere like that, 
mm-hmm. where you can get a clear shot in the circumstances of the Cosmos National Park. It is a very restricted geogra- geographic area, to, uh, topographic area, and the vegetation is dense. So the chance of getting a good clean shot, uh, one shot, one one kill, uh, is is not guaranteed. So that the horses can be left maimed or wounded, and we we find that is totally unacceptable. Mm. Let's um, get back to why we're even uh, managing their population uh, anyway. Um, now, it, ha- I hear that the, the Brumby is scapegoated um, as far as size, visibility. It, I guess it doesn't hide as much as other animals from humankind. What, what are your opinions on, on that? Has the Brumby been scapegoated for a lot of damage in the park? Emma, there's no question that there is a range of what we refer to as feral animals, which are causing an immense amount of damage to the Kosciuszko National Park and totally out of control. And uh, National Parks and Wildlife Service authorities agree with that. They don't have the resources, and we support them in this. They don't have the resources to deal with uh, the feral pigs, uh, particularly rabbits uh, are getting a spread on them, Uh, foxes, cats, uh, goats, deer, uh, there are a whole range of animals there, which, particularly the pigs and the cats, uh, are causing a lot of damage um, to the, particularly the cats, the wildlife, foxes, and wild dogs. And these are feral dogs. These animals are rampant in the park and uh, totally out of control. And, and it distresses us, uh, as you say, that the Brumby has become the focus of attention of the National Parks and Wildlife Service because they are high profile. Uh, they have the, the funds to deal with them. It still costs them well over $1,000 per horse to get rid of them out of the park. Mm. And if there are <clears throat> 14,000 horses there as claimed by the, the ANU, then that's a serious issue in terms of dollars. Mm. But uh, we think it's substantially less numbers than that. Uh, we're close to the three and a half to 4,000 number would be somewhere in the vicinity of the, mm. the estimated number in the park. Yeah. Uh, those Those... Horses, Emma, can be dealt with by local um, operators, uh, and they can, in fact, be be trapped or captured by locals, as happened for generations. I have to say that over 100, 150 years, uh, these animals were caught by locals and uh, young horse men and women uh, who are skilled at catching the animals uh, can do so, and it won't cost the taxpayer a red cent and the horse to be treated in a more humane way. Uh, it, it is interesting because I know that Maylee's son, and we'll, I'll try and get her back on the line a bit later on uh, in a couple of minutes, but she, you, also there's a lot of damage. There is damage being done by the Brumbies, but I hear that there's damage being done by all the aforementioned animals you said, native and non-native. Um, and, and the fact that uh, I guess in the research they've just concentrated and focused on on damage that the horse has been doing and excluding all of those other factors and components. So that's where they have been scapegoated. And, and also, like, people go in the park and, you know, they can um, transport weeds and, and grass seeds on their socks <laughs> and on... on well, they can, Emma, Emma, and, the, and there the, is... Yeah. Yeah, there was a claim made by the environment movement that horses spread weeds. That That is a nonsense. Horses don't eat weeds. There is only one weed that they will eat, that's a thistle. And the stomach acids in the uh, metabolism of the horse neutralise the seed. And there's clear evidence of that here on my property. I've got about 40 horses running around my property on about 350 acres. 
and you can barely find a thistle and adjoining property owners have thistles and the reason for there being no thistles is the horses eat the top out of the crown of the thistle when it's young, neutralise the seed and they don't spread them. Now, apart from that, uh, I am now had described to me by some social media um, people, people on social media on Facebook, who tell me that they, they contend that horses eat weeds because they eat clovers ryegrass and and other uh, introduced species which we don't consider to be a weed which have been in the park for 150 200 years uh, when the land was freehold and they have to remember that much of the Kosciuszko National Park was freehold up until 1948 uh, and then when the National Parks Act or State Park Act was introduced and the grazing uh, the, the freehold rights were, were resulted in the land being resumed by the government for the Kosciuszko National Park and for the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme, the progressive um, takeover of the land by government didn't stop the grasses from growing. I mean, all of the grasses were introduced by by livestock and it was quite legal because it was freehold land. And that land was resumed by the government. Uh, they took authority over it and, of course, the grasses continue to grow. Now, if you're going to determine that uh, a clover, an introduced clover, or ryegrass or phalaris or whatever it might be, is a, is a weed, then of course the brummies will eat the weeds, because that's what's there. And the, the horses, the brummies will eat what is there. And they will eat the native grasses. And it's a huge benefit to fire protection, wildfire protection, from the rest of the native animals. And in 2003, when we had horrendous fires go through the Kosciuszko National Park, in fact 90% of the park was burnt out. There was a massive loss of wildlife. All those little creatures, that, the very little things that run around the floor of the forest at night time, the gliders and the like, all the arboreals, all those little animals were, were, were killed because, and so were the habitat. The, loss, the lot was lost. But in those areas where the Brumbies were most, the, the densest population of Brumbies, those wildlife were saved. So the Brumbies, in fact, are an asset to the wildlife of the Kosciuszko National Park. Yeah, it's interesting because I have heard also that horses, um, you know, when they when it's snowing as well with their hooves, they they also help hoove up, um, you know, food and and water sources for the native animals as well. Yes, they do, and uh, I mean, there are so many of these arguments, yeah. which mm. some of which are based on science, and the scientists, unfortunately. Uh, take a Puritan attitude to, towards the management of the park in so much as they say that any animal which is non-native should not be there. Well, this is a nonsense because evolution has been going on since time began and animals do move around the world, including two-legged animals, and they, <laughs> they, they will move around the world and nobody will stop it. And the horses have been here for over 200 years and they will remain here. And that's it. It's a manage, matter of management, uh, Emma. And sensible management can allow the Brummies to stop in their place, which is part of our cultural heritage. And, and in addition to that, uh, there is great benefit uh, and pleasure from people seeing these horses in the wild. You are listening to 3CR Freedom of Species and we are talking about the Brumbies of Kosciuszko National Park who are currently being rounded up um, and all of the Brumbies, are, well, I hear the Brumbies are in good condition and um, which means the environment is in good condition and they will, unfortunately, their freedom will be taken from them and they will be, uh, a lot of them, a bulk of them will be taken to a slaughterhouse or a knackery as only a minority get rehomed. So, Peter... 
just getting back to the protected protective status that you're calling for for the Brumby, what is that and how would that change things? Emma, the, the Brumby has grown a part of the cultural heritage of Australia from from the time of settlement. Horses were first introduced into Australia from India and South Africa. And uh, the close association with the horse, of course, was that the people in the settlement uh, were dependent on the horses uh, for transport, for recreation, for ploughing the fields, and a whole range of everything revolved around the horse. Uh, and so the, the Australian people developed a very close association with the horse, uh, using the transport over long distances. And, and of course, when the, the Boer War um, eventuated in South Africa in the Transvaal, the horses that were sought in Australia for troops to use the light horse uh, were those horses which, in fact, had come from South Africa. In fact, most of them had been, uh, were, were Brumbies, and a lot of them were Brumbies. And uh, they were transported from Australia, from Albany, uh, back to in West Australia, back to uh, South Africa and used in the Boer War. Similarly, in the Middle East, the First World War, they were used there. So throughout the history of Australia, not only have we had a strong connection with, uh, a military connection with the, with the horses, particularly the Brumby, but in our, in our cultural heritage, if you look at uh, the opening of the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000, of all the themes that could be chosen to represent Australia or showcase Australia to the entire world at the opening of the Olympic Games 2000, the theme that was chosen was the man from the Snowy River and the Snowy Mountains Brumby. Now, that in itself uh, told the world that we are horse people, that we, we, we have a passionate love for our horses in the Snowy Mountains, and we're proud of the fact that we have uh, this cultural uh, difference from the rest of the world, and whether we're like the gauchos in South America or mm. we are, you know, the equivalent of the, uh, the, the any of the horse riders across the world, this was the image, the image that we wanted to show the world in that very prominent event in the history of the world. The year 2000, change of century, uh, Australia, Sydney, uh, all of those things were showcased to the world with the man from the Snowy River and the Snowy Mountains Brumby. Now we have a group of people, a very selfish minority of people, who want to see the Snowy Mountains Brumby totally eliminated, yeah. abolished, mm. annihilated. <laughs> oh, goodness. And I, I know that, uh, as you say, the ANU were kind of putting all this stuff out there that a, a third of the wetlands in the Oz Alps have been degraded by horses and, and, and a bigger impact likely in the Kosciuszko region just to kind of push through these culling methods. I'm just wondering, Peter... I know that the, the national parks are changing the number of Brumbies, uh, well, then renegotiating what's going to happen here with this new plan. But taking into account the questionable population analysis, could the number national parks will change that to be, uh, do we just have to be careful? It could just be window dressing of sorts to make the plan more palatable for the public and, and be seen as working with pro-Brumby groups? Yes, I, I suspect that's more than possible. Um, there are some very cunning planners and strategists uh, in the National Parks and Wildlife Service, and I've been dealing with them for 40-odd years. So, uh, yes, I'm aware that uh, figures can be manipulated, and to be fair, they can be manipulated on both sides of the debate. Uh, so 
we, what we need to do is firstly acknowledge that these horses are part of our cultural heritage. And to go back to your earlier question, uh, what I've proposed is that, uh, and this has been accepted by the Deputy Premier, John Barillaro, who happens to be a local member as well, that, that the horses do, these Brumbies do have a, a very strong cultural connection with, with our history. And uh, so what we've proposed, and I've had uh, assistance from a legal team who have prepared legislation to go into the New South Wales Parliament, uh, which will recognise the cultural significance of the Snowy Mountains Brumby <clears throat> and require National Parks and Wildlife Service or any other government instrumentality or private operation uh, to pay heed to the fact in changing their operations or their management of any land that where there are Brumbies present, Snowy Mountains Brumbies present, that they have to uh, take care of their future and uh, ensure that they uh, maintain the genetic um, and DNA families that are, that are in the mountains. Those sorts of things are important because uh, if some of these families uh, are broken up uh, and the, the DNA cluster is lost for all time, uh, then that in itself is, is a loss to the cultural uh, history of Australia. So... We're keen to see um, see pursued a course where the Snowy Mountains Brumby is recognised in legislation uh, and that's enforced with um, evidence we have with DNA, which has been studied in the United States on our behalf, uh, ensuring that the DNA of these Brumbies is protected for all time. Excellent. So at the moment, I understand people can, um, individuals, and come on guys, We it, it only takes a couple of minutes, can send in submissions, is that right, until August now to support your yeah, effort? Well, we, we, yes, you can always send in, in, uh, in uh, submissions. I mean, the more people who write to their local members in New South Wales particularly, but if there's Victorians who can write into any others who can write into the New South Wales government and direct the correspondence to the Premier of New South Wales, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, and I'm not going to spell that for you, by the way. <laughs> it's okay, we'll put it I'll on the, the podcast. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> Something you can find it in, a, in, yeah. in uh, Google the name there. Excellent. Anyway, um, yeah, look, anybody who can um, make a submission, write a, a pleading letter, a begging letter, to the New South Wales government to spare the lives of the Kosciuszko Brumby, we'd appreciate it, and so would they. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. We'll have to wrap it up there, and we'll, we'll get you on it in a future show because we, we tend to have a, a show on the Brumby every so often. And thank you so much, May Lee. I'm sorry we couldn't get you back on the line. Thank you so much for your time today, Peter. You're welcome. Uh, take care. So you are listening to 3CR Freedom of Species and we just heard a little bit of an update about what's going on with our Brumbies, particularly in New South Wales, uh, Kosciuszko National Park. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.